I think most casual observers would say if you're going to give up that much amount of money on a subject that's of great controversy, they would think that's something for Congress to act on. Give up that much money in the student loan forgiveness program? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Hmm. I got the feeling that something right. Who is the Chief Justice worried about? I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Just asking. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's KEPW, in Lanchester, Pennsylvania on W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio uh, for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me over and over again from bradblog.com. I say it sometimes, too. Thank you. Not nearly enough. (laughs) Hi, Desi Doyen. (laughs) So the uh, corrupted, stolen, and packed far-right U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday heard two different challenges to the Biden administration's attempt to forgive up to $20,000 in federal student student loans for those making less than $125,000 per year. And of course, while small businesses received hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans, even millions of dollars that were forgiven by the federal government during the pandemic, nobody made it to the Supreme Court to prevent those companies from having you know, their loans forgiven. Huh. Nobody tried to block them for some reason. Weird, isn't it? But students, well, apparently that's a different matter for the right-wing Republican-appointed judges who have gone out of their way to allow these challenges to move forward, no matter how absurd they actually are, as we will discuss with my guest, David Dayan of The American Prospect, who joins us momentarily. But just to sort of whet your appetite, here was Hassan Minhaj, guest hosting The Daily Show last night with a few thoughts of his own on the topic. Now, you know this issue. There's basically two camps, right? There's one group that says, let's go clear history on everybody's student debt. But then there's another group of Kirkland Signature dads going, hey, I had to work 30 hours a day to pay off my student debts. I got by life, and so should you, kids. (laughs) And dads, I hear you. No one should be happy. But I promise you, even if student debt gets canceled, life is going to curb stomp your kids anyway. They're already f***ed. 
They don't have health insurance. They're not going to be able to buy a house. And at some point, they'll run out of clean water. So don't worry, boomers. You'll get what you always wanted. Vengeance on your own children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's... That's kind of about what it, it sounds it? like. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Now, to be clear, uh, those dads uh, that he's talking about there were likely not paying the ridiculous tuitions that the kids are now forced to pay. I mean, did you know that back in the day, all of the University of California schools were free for California residents, completely free? You could have gone to UCLA or UC Santa Barbara or UC Irvine, UC Berkeley, et cetera, for free back in the day. Not now, however. And for those of you who might have, you know, paid a few thousand dollars per year for tuition, well, those schools are now tens of thousands of dollars per year. So anyone claiming, as Hassan suggests, hey, I worked hard to pay off my student loans, so you kids have to do so as well. Ask them how much they actually had to borrow to pay for their school versus what uh, kids right now have to borrow to go to school just 10 or 20 or 30 years later. Anyway, more on that and several other items of breaking and or fresh uh, progressive related news from over the past 24 hours or so with David Day and momentarily. But for some very quick election news, yes, it was Election Day in the great city of Chicago on Tuesday. And according to the uh, reported, if still incomplete and unconfirmed results out of the Windy City today, Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson will meet in a runoff to be the next mayor of Chicago after voters denied incumbent Lori Lightfoot a second term, issuing a rebuke to a leader who made history as the head of the nation's third largest city. It is the first time in nearly 40 years that an incumbent Chicago mayor has been rejected by voters. Vallis, a former school's CEO backed by the Fraternal Order of Police Union, and Johnson, a progressive Cook County uh, commissioner endorsed by the Chicago Teachers Union, both advanced to the April 4 runoff after none of the nine candidates were able to secure over 50 percent of the vote to win outright on Tuesday. Lightfoot, the first black woman and first openly gay person to lead the city, she won her first term in 2019 after promising to end decades of corruption and backroom dealing at City Hall. But opponents blamed her for an increase in crime an increase that occurred in cities across the U.S. during the pandemic, and they criticized her as being divisive uh, and overly contentious. Whether the fact that she's the first black woman, an openly gay person, uh, to serve as Chicago's mayor, whether that helped to foster that perception of her as divisive or overly contentious, well, I'll leave that to others to decide. I mean, haven't we heard stories about the civility of Chicago politics? If only she had smiled more. She is the first elected Chicago mayor to lose a re-election bid since 1983 when Jane Byrne, the city's first female mayor, lost her Democratic primary. So the city's first and second female mayors are the only two in 40 years to not win re-election. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. At his victory party, Vallis, sounding like the mayoral candidate at the beginning of a Batman movie, said that if elected, quote, we will have a safe Chicago, we will make Chicago the safest city in America. And then Joker popped out of the shadows, knocked everyone (laughs) out with purple gas and stole all the ladies' jewels. 
For his part, Johnson on Tuesday night noted the improbability that he would make the runoff at all, considering his low name recognition at the start of the race. Johnson, who is African-American, thanked the unions that supported him and gave a special shout out to his wife, telling the crowd, Chicago, a black woman will still be in charge if he's elected. (laughs) There are clear contrasts between Vallis and Johnson. Vallis served as an advisor to the Fraternal Order of Police during its negotiations with Lightfoot's administration. He has called for adding hundreds of police officers to patrol the city, saying crime is out of control. His opponents criticized him as too conservative to lead the Democratic stronghold of Chicago. Lightfoot blasted him for welcoming support from the police union's controversial leader who defended... (laughs) defended the January 6 insurrectionists at the Capitol and equated Lightfoot's vaccine mandate for city workers to the Holocaust. Because, of course, Lightfoot accused Vallis of using, quote, the ultimate dog whistle by saying his campaign is about, quote, taking back our city and of cozying up to the president of the Fraternal Order of Police, who she called a racist. A recent Chicago Trib story also found that Vallis's Twitter account had liked racist tweets and tweets that mocked Lightfoot's appearance, referring to her as masculine. Uh, Vallis denied his comments were related to race. He also said he wasn't responsible for the liked tweets, which he called abhorrent and suggested someone had improperly accessed his account. That's probably what happened. On the other hand, Johnson received about one million dollars from the Chicago Teachers Union and had support from several other progressive organizations. The former teacher and union organizer has argued that the answer to addressing crime is not more money for police, but more investment in mental health care, education, jobs, and affordable housing. The runoff between Vallis, who received almost uh, 34% of the vote on Tuesday, reportedly, and Johnson, who clocked in with just over 20%, uh, that runoff will be on April 4. Lightfoot received about 17% of the vote, followed by progressive U.S. Congressman uh, Jesus Chuy Garcia, he got about 14 percent. If progressives who voted for Lightfoot and Garcia move to Johnson, it should be more than enough to beat Vallis. But we shall see what happens in just over a month's time. All right. Quick break. And we will be joined by David Dayan to discuss student loan forgiveness at the corrupt U.S. Supreme Court and several other issues of note. For progressives at the court, on their medical bills, and at the Department of Labor. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. You learn to sleep at night with the price you pay. Yep, you do. 
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. There have been a number of progressive, populist, and labor-related stories of the past 24 hours, which have made me want to turn to David Dayan, executive editor of the of the American Prospect, for his insights into these stories, as each seems to be both solidly in his wheelhouse and stuff that both he and his great magazine have long been covering and or championing. Among those topics in the news, and I'm fairly certain of note to Mr. Dayan, the future for President Biden's federal student loan forgiveness program, the very existence of the one federal agency focused squarely on the side of consumers, that would be the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, some seemingly good breaking news on Wednesday regarding the price of insulin for all Americans and News today of a new leader for the administration's Department of Labor. Let's start with the student loan forgiveness program, which was the subject of a very long oral argument before our corrupted, packed and stolen far right Supreme Court on Tuesday as two separate challenges to President Biden's arguably long overdue attempt to fully forgive up to twenty thousand dollars per student borrower under the uh, uh, under the 2003 HEROES Act, has so far been blocked by Republican-appointed judges in the lower courts for some reason. That, even though the text of the 2003 HEROES Act, created by Congress and signed by the President of the United States at the time in the shadow of the 9-11 terror attacks, seems to be pretty straightforward in its mandate to ensure that federal student loan borrowers would not be economically hampered During a national emergency, specifically, the law says that when the president declares such an emergency, the secretary of education has the power to, quote, waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision governing student loan programs. Well, that seems clear enough, but apparently not to the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, as illustrated by this question for Biden's administration, for the Biden administration's solicitor general, Elizabeth Prelogger, from uh, Chief Justice John Roberts on Tuesday. We're talking about half a trillion dollars uh, and 43 million Americans. If you're talking about this in the abstract, I think most casual observers would say if you're going to give up that much amount of money, if you're going to affect the obligations of that many Americans on a subject that's of great controversy, they would think that's something for Congress to act on. And if they haven't acted on it, then maybe that's a good lesson to say for the president or or the um, uh, administrative bureaucracy that maybe that's not something they should undertake on their own. Well, now, I think the uh, chief justice's use of the words give up that much money is uh, somewhat telling there, especially for those 43 million Americans that this program is meant to help, not by giving up money, but by them receiving it in forgiven loans. Uh, Who is John Roberts actually concerned about there, one wonders. In any event, Solicitor General Prelogger replied on behalf of the Biden administration that Congress had, in fact, acted in this manner when it uh, passed the 2003 law creating special provisions for student loan forgiveness during anticipated future declared national emergencies. It certainly seems like the COVID-19 pandemic was and arguably still is a national emergency. 
that led to, among other things, hundreds of billions of dollars in Forgivable Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP loans, handed out to small businesses at the height of that crisis. For some reason, that program, implemented under a Republican president, faced little or no scrutiny by Republican plaintiffs and Republican federal judges, many of whom were actually nominated to their jobs by the same Republican president who enacted the PPP program. There were two separate challenges heard by the court on Tuesday to Biden's policy to forgive student loans to borrowers making less than $125,000 a year. A program that is predicted to cost about $300 billion, even as the chief justice inflated that number uh, in that quote to half a trillion in his colloquy with the Biden solicitor general on Tuesday. There are two cases, as I say, one is Biden v. Nebraska, in which a group of six Republican led states, Missouri, Nebraska, Iowa, Arkansas, Kansas and South Carolina, argued the administration exceeded its authority by using the pandemic as a pretext to to mask the true goal of fulfilling a campaign promise to erase student loan debt. The second case is Department of Education versus Brown, which was initially brought by two individuals who did not qualify for the program, and they argue that the government failed to follow proper rulemaking procedures when putting it in place. How either of those uh, two different uh, sets of plaintiffs, challengers to the administration's forgiveness policy, are actually harmed by that policy, which is a critical point that must be made clear for the challengers to even have legal standing to sue here in the first place. However, they are harmed is at least unclear to me, despite the topic being of much discussion during the three and a half hour oral argument at the high court on Tuesday. As the American Prospects' Robert Kuttner observed this week regarding the two different lawsuits currently blocking implementation of the president's attempt to offer financial relief to student borrowers, quote, to say that these are far-fetched arguments is an understatement. Yet this case is before the Supreme Court because lower courts packed with Trump appointees have blocked Biden from proceeding. With this court, he writes, almost any invention is possible. Here to discuss those inventions and others, including the reason that the very existence of the Federal Consumer Financial Protection Bureau created to help American consumers in the wake of the 2008 global financial meltdown is now in question and headed to the same corrupted high court is the American Prospects executive editor, David Dayan, who is also a progressive financial journalist and the author of Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power and Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. That book earned the Studs and Ida Turkle Prize. David uh, was also the winner of the 2021 Hillman Prize for Excellence in Magazine Journalism. Oh, Mr. Dayan, excellent to have you back on the broadcast, sir. Good to be here. So I was not able to listen to the court's hearing live at the time. I think you did, but I have been trying to catch up with what I could learn since. Now, everything that I've read about it in the corporate media, David, suggests that the court, uh, the, the court's right-wing justices will strike this thing down. For example, NPR, uh, their headline, Conservative Justices Skeptical of Biden's Student Loan Forgiveness Plan. AP, Supreme Court Seems Ready to Sink 
student loan forgiveness. Washington Post, Supreme Court seems ready to reject student loan forgiveness. Before we get into the details of the case, was that also your takeaway following that uh, three-and-a-half-hour hearing on Tuesday? I mean, if I had to bet, I would certainly uh, bet on that outcome. Mm -hmm. That's certainly what the arguments seem to show in terms of the merits of the case. The real variable here is whether the court will agree that these plaintiffs have standing mm-hmm. to sue. And uh, that that was a little more of a close-run thing, where you saw even conservative justices like Justice Coney Barrett question whether or not these plaintiffs had standing. And so if this is going to be waved through, it will be probably because the fact that these plaintiffs didn't, you know, identify an injury mm-hmm. uh, uh, to them. And I want to get to that uh, standing issue and what the harms are that these plaintiffs claim that they face. But let me hit some of these details. You, you've been covering this, David, uh, this battle back when it wasn't even between right wingers and the Biden administration, back when it was between progressives and the White House as to whether they had the authority to do this in the first place. And as I recall, if memory serves, uh, you had argued that the White House does have that clear authority. In this case, they use the HEROES Act to do it. Has anything raised by the challenges that you watched before the high court now changed your thinking on the legal authorities in question here? Well, I mean, the legal authorities are, I guess, what the the, the six right-wing justices say they are at some level. <laughs> whether, whether that reflects reality or not is is kind of beside the point. When we were identifying this ability to cancel student debt, if, if you recall, the first time we wrote this was in September 2019 when nobody had ever heard of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we based it on a different set of authorities. That was the Higher Education Act of 1965 and its ability through something called Compromise and Settlement Authority to essentially change the terms of debts issued by the federal government uh, and 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 cancel or modify or or, or, or waive them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the administration went for a different approach. It was the approach that the Trump administration took in extending the payment pause, which is still in effect. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the approach that other presidents have taken with respect uh, to student loans and and student borrowing in uh, various emergencies. The HEROES Act was originally passed in the wake of 9-11. Uh, it was to do with uh, terrorist attacks and situations. It was subsequently expanded mm-hmm. to cover national emergencies of any kind. The administration obviously felt that uh, because the Trump administration literally just used this, right. and because the authorities in it were pretty clear, that that would be the, the quickest way to get this through and and get it done. There was some question as to whether certain rulemaking would have to be undertaken uh, with respect to the Higher Education Act. So so that's what they did. Mm-hmm. I I think that uh, the Solicitor General, Elizabeth Preliger, made a pretty good case that it's pretty clear in the statute, in the event of an emergency, the, the Secretary of Education can waive or modify any provision of the student lending program, 
that would seem to give him that ability. Even Brett Kavanaugh, who was skeptical of the case, said that wave is a pretty strong word that uh, connotes some pretty broad authority. Mm -hmm. However, uh, I think on balance, uh, the conservative justices using a doctrine that they just sort of made up called the major questions doctrine, yeah. which says if a, if a, 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 a rule or regulation or, or in this case a benefit program is something that they don't like yes. and it's too big that they uh, can, can say that, that Congress didn't explicitly say if there is a pandemic sometime in the future, you can cut student loan balances yeah and so that's that's essentially the argument it was it was the major questions doctrine if i recall that they also used to say that uh the epa could not regulate carbon pollution because even though uh congress has said over and over again the epa may uh regulate harmful pollutants they didn't specifically say carbon and about that one that pollutant, well, apparently there are major questions that uh, Congress must speak to specifically. And right. these major questions... And, of course, Congress yeah. usually legislates uh, broadly, right. uh, particularly with respect to a statute that is about a national emergency in the future. Right. It is impossible to yes. specifically say X emergency means that we do Y. The, 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 mm-hmm. the whole point was to give this broad authority to the the expert, to the Secretary of Education, to prevent these borrowers from being in a worse situation as a result of the uh, particular emergency. And when Trump used this very same statute, the HEROES Act, to uh, pause, if not waive the uh, the the loans themselves was he challenged by these same plaintiffs for changing and modifying the the terms of those loans by pausing them no he was not uh even though that that has uh caused significant i mean uh they were talking in terms of the student loan program from biden being a 400 billion dollar cost there's an ongoing cost of hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, by some estimates, 150 billion per year from the student loan payment pause, which is now in its third year. Mm. So the, there does seem to be some situational ethics going on. <laughs> Very nicely put. Uh, the Republican justices were trying to argue uh, that completely forgiving uh, ten or twenty thousand dollars of these loans is not the same as waiving or modifying them. Uh, that. Uh, you know that for that Congress had to take very specific actions. Simply saving, saying waiving or modifying was not enough. That is uh, again seems like it's invented out of whole cloth. No, if if I if you owe me a hundred dollars and I say I waive that uh, uh, that IOU, then that means it's gone. I mean, the, the text seems yeah, very I mean, clear they, here. They, they technically said that. Uh, what the statute said was waive or modify provisions of the student loan statute. And they, they said that that wouldn't include uh, canceling uh, or forgiving a subset of the loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, I don't really think it's that close run a thing. I, I think if you get to waive a provision, um, you know, requiring repayment is certainly one of those provisions mm-hmm. uh the the ju- you know the justices were on uh less firm legal ground and more ideological ground 
when you saw this extraordinary passage by Chief Justice John Roberts, where he starts talking about the unfairness of it all <laughs> and how someone who decided not to go to college but decided to run a lawn care business out of high school instead would not be eligible for uh, any kind of relief as a result of the pandemic, which to which the, the Solicitor General and Justice Kagan said, well, but Congress wrote a law that ta- specifically talked about student loan borrowers. Uh-huh. They did not write a law that talked about lawn care business borrowers right. uh, on their, their business loans. And just because you have this sort of abstract, airy-fairy idea of unfairness doesn't mean that the statute that very specifically targets a certain subset of the population for relief cannot get it. The, uh, the, the, you know, the extension, the logical extension of that idea is that all laws that don't incorporate the, the potential fairness uh, considerations of every single individual citizen of the United States <laughs> right. are therefore invalid. I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous argument, and it was a way in which Roberts and the conservatives on the court were show, um, letting their slip show yes. that they just don't like this thing, and they're going to come up with a doctrine to uh, uh, rid themselves of something they don't like. This is not the rule of law. This is the rule of man. I mean, this is uh, when they're just making stuff up here. Uh, Here's a Trump appointed uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch raising the fairness matter, uh, seemingly uh, on on behalf of the plaintiffs here. Uh, What I think they argue that is missing is cost to other persons in terms of fairness, for example, people who've paid their loans, people who um, don't ha- ha- have planned their lives around not seeking loans um, and people who are not eligible for loans in the first place, and that a half a trillion dollars is being diverted to one group of favored persons over others. I think that's the nature of their argument, in addition to, as you point out, the cost of the FISC. Those kinds of arguments are inconsistent with the statutory scheme that Congress set up here. Congress already made the judgment that in the context of a national emergency, you should be able to provide borrowers with this kind of relief. That was the Solicitor, exactly. Ge- solicitor General responding to uh, 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 Gorsuch there. Uh, planned, they did, uh, unfair to people who plan their lives around not seeking loans, David. That must be a well, nice I- way to plan your life. <laughs> Well, I mean, but but the point is here that, you know, for all the talk of how conservatives on the court are textualists Mm -hmm. and they only look to the actual text of the statute (laughs) to make their rulings, here Justice Gorsuch is bringing in an entire other class of, of, of individuals who have nothing to do with this particular statute of the HEROES Act and say that they needed to be considered in, in the context of, of rendering this statute. It, it, it's Congress passed this law. They then updated this law. So several Congresses got involved uh-huh. in the, the, the fashioning of this law, and uh, they made the determinations they made and now the the judiciary branch is deciding that they didn't make enough uh, uh, room in their statute for other people, and so we're going to invalidate the statute. And by the way, they're not going to do anything 
for those people who plan their lives around not uh, seeking loans <laughs> right. or people who got lawn care businesses, they're just going to screw over the 43 million student loan borrowers. Uh, that was a, a key part, uh, you know, the insanity of the second case, the Brown versus the Department of Education, is that those two borrowers say that the they didn't get a chance to argue that they should have gotten more relief from this student loan uh, relief program, and that the remedy is to cancel the whole program. <laughs> like, so how does that exactly correspond to their claim that they didn't get enough relief and the idea is that nobody should get any relief at all. It's it's Matt. Did, did uh, any questions about fairness uh, to small businesses who did not receive forgivable PPP loan uh, forgiveness, did that come up as an issue? Or do those concerns about fairness only occur when we're talking about loan forgiveness to economically disadvantaged folks, uh, you know, those who arguably need that forgiveness the most. Did that come up here? Because those loans were also uh, forgiven during the uh, during the COVID pandemic. Well, of course, that didn't come up in the context of this case, because the, the, the liberals on the court are actually in the position of being the textualists here, yep. looking at this statute, the HEROES Act, right. which talks about what it, what the government can do for student loan borrowers in the event of an emergency. The PPP borrowers are a separate statute, and if a separate case came to the fore, maybe we could talk about it in that context. Although I, I hasten to say that I don't think the conservatives on the court would would talk about the unfairness of the lack of relief for people who didn't happen to own small businesses <laughs> yes, at the time that the uh, that the pandemic hit. That's what blows my mind about this. They really are just making stuff up here. These so-called textualists, these constitutionalists, the major questions doctrine, nowhere to be found in the Constitution, just made up out of whole cloth. Uh, David mm-hmm. Dan, you suggest. Uh, Really, the only thing that could at this point knock this down, given the way these right wingers are dealing with it, is uh, standing in the case that the plaintiffs in this matter, they have to be able to show that they are they are somehow harmed by this uh, provision if it is allowed to go through. What are the harms that these six states who are suing say that they will suffer if this federal student loan debt forgiveness program is allowed to take effect? Sure. And uh, let me let me first step back and say why this is important, because I, I imagine your audience is saying, well, if, if the, these justices are so dead set on 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 nullifying this program, why would they let something like standing get mm-hmm. in the way? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they, they just figure out a way to, to say that that this would, uh, you know, apply to them. These plaintiffs were injured. Yeah. Well, the entire history of jurisprudence in, in the modern era, on the Roberts Court in particular, has been to shrink, narrow, and deny access to courts using standing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the Roberts Court has, has generally taken a very conservative position on who is actually injured by an activity of the federal government or of a corporation and limits who can call for standing. If they decide to open it up in this case, 
they open the floodgates, really, for other plaintiffs, including liberal plaintiffs, what? to say, well, here's a precedent where you said that uh, mm-hmm. uh, these particular plaintiffs had standing, mm-hmm. even though it was kind of tenuous. And so I'm going to uh, uh, assert that in a case that, uh, you know, involves a corporate uh, in, uh, mm-hmm. situation of some sort mm-hmm. or a future Republican uh, regulation. Mm-hmm. And so that's the concern. And that's why I think that, it, though it sounds a little far-fetched, that the conservatives on the court might not go for the standing argument. Now let me get into what these standing arguments are. You mean, they, they you, are you mean to say they... You you mean to say they they might not buy the argument that might these not people buy have standing? That these plaintiffs gotcha. have standing. That's Good. correct. Okay, and and so I'll take both in kind. The first case uh, is is the two plaintiffs who said they didn't get enough student debt relief in this from this program. Mm-hmm. Their claim is that they were denied the ability through the the administrative procedure process, notice and comment, to comment and convince the Secretary of Education to change the program to incorporate them and give them better debt relief. The text of the HEROES Act says the Secretary can waive the notice and comment period. Mm. And in fact, in the lower court ruling that got this up to the Supreme Court, that judge even acknowledged that the notice and comment period can be waived under the HEROES Act. It was It's absolutely ridiculous, and most of the justices, including the conservatives, took a very dim view of standing with respect to those plaintiffs. Interesting. So yeah. let's just put that one aside. Uh, that uh, one, uh, I think, is not going to go forward. Let, let me, just very quickly, why did they not qualify? Because they made more than $125,000 a year? Do you yeah, it was, it was uh, uh, either that or, or mm-hmm. they didn't have Pell Grants, I believe. One I of them didn't have Pell Grants, and uh-huh. so didn't get the 20000 as okay. opposed to the 10000 uh, 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 but the point being that yeah. they're asking, and the second part of that is in standing, you have to have a remedy that would, would satisfy your claim, and their remedy is to throw out the whole program okay. so that nobody gets help, which is something that Justice Sotomayor called completely illogical. Right. The idea that you're suing to say, I didn't get enough, and your remedy is nobody gets anything. Right. So, okay. uh, so, so that, I don't think is going to go forward. I do think that the, the, the court will deny standing in that case. Okay. The, the, the case of the six states, um, they have two main things that they're claiming about standing. The first is the fact that uh, the state-based um, uh, adjusted gross income when you, you file your taxes is based on the federal figure. And if you forgive student debt relief, but uh, uh, you don't count that as income. You deny those states uh, the, the ability to, to uh, tax uh, on those particular individuals. Uh, mm-hmm. That I don't think is going to fly. That is known as a self-inflicted wound. If they don't like being tied to the federal adjusted gross income, they can change their laws. Mm. And in fact, two of the states suing aren't tied to federal okay. gross income. Okay. So uh, uh, that part seems insane to me. Uh, so the second part, which is uh, the one that the whole thing's going to hinge on, is the fact that the state of Missouri, which is one of the plaintiffs in the case, mm-hmm. has uh, what is called an instrumentality, and that is uh, known as the Missouri 
Higher Education Loan Authority, mm-hmm. or MOHILA. Mm-hmm. And MOHILA is a servicer of loans. In other words, uh, they're contracted by the, the federal government to collect monthly payments on student loans. And the idea is that if, if this student debt relief goes through and some of these loans are canceled and others, the balances are dropped, that MOHILA will then have less money uh, to, to uh, receive as payment for servicing these loans uh, and, uh, by extension, will have less money to give to the Treasury of the state of Missouri. Mm-hmm. Now, here are the problems with that. Number one, MOHILA and the state of Missouri are separate legal entities. Right. Number two, Mokila, under questioning from Representative Cory Bush, said, we are not part of this case, <laughs> and we look forward to engaging in the loan relief when it is uh, put, put out there and, and, and affirmed. <laughs> so they are not part of this case. They said they don't want to be part of this case. In trying to collect information, the plaintiffs had to essentially give a FOIA to Mohila, like a Freedom of Information Act request, to even get the information from Mohila. They are not part of this case at all. Uh, the idea is that, oh, but, uh, you know, it was set up by the state, it was an instrumentality. Mohila has been, uh, but the, the, the facts are that Mohila is, is a separate legal entity, has been sued separately, and this idea that there's money that flows from Mohila to the state, the specific fund where uh, student loan pro, uh, uh, servicing proceeds goes to the state is a fund that Mohila hasn't paid into in the last 15 years. So, so uh, it is a very tenuous, very thin read. And basically, and, and the, the administration through uh, the Solicitor General said this, yeah. the, the argument is basically if A owes money to B, and B owes money to C, then C can sue on behalf of A. That, that, that's kind of what they're saying there. Uh, suing on behalf of uh, an agency that could itself have, if they wanted, I guess, signed on with these plaintiffs or signed on to their own lawsuit, uh, completely Correct. separate from this, and made their own argument for and why they were even, being harmed. Even Justice Barrett mm-hmm. said in oral arguments, why isn't Mohila here? Yeah. If they're just an arm of the state, couldn't you have just strong-armed them and said, come into court and 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 present here as as you know a uh-huh. harmed entity? And the 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 lawyer in the case for the plaintiffs, who was the solicitor general of Nebraska. Uh, had no real good argument for that. He said it was a political issue. I, you um, know, even if uh, somehow Mohila was uh, regarded as a harmed plaintiff here, even though they haven't signed on to the case, uh, that might maybe give standing to the state of Missouri. It doesn't explain the other five states who have nothing to do. Well, I mean, the, 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 <laughs> that is true, but the point is that if you get one yes on standing if someone has standing then the justices can move to the merits of the case so all they need is mohila mm. uh this this argument from mohila uh that the, the they threw out a bunch of other arguments which were kind of dismissed even at the district court level but they got a nibble on mohila and so that is now 
where this entire thing is hinging. Uh, and you had definitely four votes that were very skeptical publicly about uh, the idea that Mohila allows for standing. Uh, Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh were silent on the matter. Mm. Uh, they didn't say anything one way or another, although both, to varying degrees, were skeptical on the merits of the case. So uh, the question is, and I think it's the only question that matters at this point for 43 million borrowers, is will uh, those four, the three liberals and Justice Barrett, bring along one other justice to say, no, you can't say that Mohila uh, and, and the speculative way in which, because it doesn't, it's not necessarily true that, that they are, they would have less balances because it's not, that's not how their, their fee for servicing is even calculated. Um, they may have more uh, uh, people come into the system mm-hmm. afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this speculative idea that because Mohila might be harmed at some point in the future, that that means the state of Missouri can sue. Uh, will will there be five votes for that? That's, that's the real question in this. That's case. the question, and that question, I guess, won't be answered until June or July of this year. Uh, David Dan, right. i got to take a quick break here. We'll come back with a lightning round now on some of these other issues I wanted to ask you about. David Dan, sit tight. He's the executive editor, of course, of The American Prospect. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to the broadcast. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I'm here with my guest, David Dayen, the executive editor of the American Prospect magazine. David, the Supreme Court said on Monday it's going to take up a Republican-led challenge to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a case that could uh, threaten, really, how the Consumer Watchdog Agency functions and, indeed, its very ability to exist at all. This is the second time in three years that the justices will be examining this federal agency. It was created in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis by the Obama administration. Uh, It was the brainchild of Elizabeth Warren back before she became a senator. And it is essentially the only federal agency that actually focuses specifically on consumers and consumer rights rather than businesses and industry. The um, the case in this matter won't be heard until next term, so essentially October or later. Mm-hmm. But after the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, regarded as the most right-wing circuit in the nation, ruled that the agency's entire funding structure is unconstitutional, now the uh, Supreme Court is going to take that up. You've been covering CFPB from its very beginning. Is its mm-hmm. funding structure unconstitutional? What's the argument there? No, and 
if you believe it is, then you believe that not only numerous other agencies in the federal government have unconstitutional funding structures, but things like Social Security and Medicare are unconstitutional. Uh, the, the idea is that the Fifth Circuit put out is that anything that's not subject to annual appropriations <laughs> from Congress is uh, does not pass constitutional muster. It claims that Congress is the exclusive entity uh, to to engage in 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 that kind of funding. Now, uh, several banking entities uh, rely on assessments from industry, mm-hmm. uh, things like the Federal Housing Finance Agency, the FDIC, uh, and 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 so on. Uh, even things like the FDA relies on user fees to fund the agency, mm-hmm. and so there's no difference functionally between those. And the CFPB, which gets its money from the Federal Reserve, uh, and and the Federal Reserve, by the way, yes. also yes. Uh, gets its money through through industry assessments and things other than from Congress. And so you would have to make all of those things unconstitutional uh, to get to this idea that the CFPB is. And in addition, yeah. anything that's not appropriated spending, like mandatory spending, like food stamps and Social Security and Medicare. All of that uh, would have to also be thrown out as unconstitutional. So this is a deeply radical opinion from the Fifth Circuit. Yeah. And uh, I, I would assume the fact that, that the Supreme Court is bringing it up is to bring some clarity to this matter and, uh, and, and, and throw that out. But we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah, regarding. you're, you're uh, uh, looking at the upside there. I hope you're right. But it is absolutely radical. And it's one of the reasons I don't call these people conservatives at all, because they're not. They're radicals. Uh, to make a, a ruling like that, as the Fifth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals did. Uh, okay, continuing our lightning round here uh, with David mm-hmm. Dayen. Uh, let's wrap up with some seemingly more encouraging news with uh, two quick, somewhat brighter stories, I think. Uh, Congressional Democrats and President Biden last year with the vote uh, without the vote of a single Republican adopted the Inflation Reduction Act. Among its features, it included a limit on the cost of insulin to no more than thirty five dollars a month. But Republicans uh, forced the bill to be changed to cover only those on federal insurance like Medicare. But. Nonetheless, it was a big victory for millions of diabetics who are paying hundreds or you know thousands of dollars uh, previously mm-hmm. per month. Today, insulin manufacturer Eli Lilly announced it would decrease the cost of insulin for everyone. What should what should be our takeaway here from that, David? Is that related to the uh, Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act scheme in some way? Well, uh, I, I think in part. Uh, I think you have to read the fine print. Uh, they did two different things. One was a cap on out-of-pocket patient costs mm-hmm. for some of its more popular insulin drugs. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, capping out-of-pocket costs, which is what was done in the Inflation Reduction Act, it, it's good for those patients, but it really just shifts who ends up paying. Uh, if you don't cut the list price, Right, uh, you're, the 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 pharmaceutical company is still getting the same amount of money. Uh, they're just getting it from the payer rather than the individual, mm. and inevitably that money shows up in premiums mm-hmm. across everybody. Ah, right, okay. So uh, uh, that's that's not a huge sacrifice on the part of uh, a, a company. Mm-hmm. Um, the other more interesting thing that Lilly did is they cut uh, list prices for for. 
two of its most popular drugs, Humalog and Humulin, by 70%. Now, that is certainly significant. The fine print there is that uh, that doesn't take effect until October. And so uh, for another seven months, they're going to be uh, enjoying the uh, benefit of the high prices of those two particular drugs. Uh, it, it seems like there's a, uh, there are some other things that they announced that they're going after uh, other, other, other insulin drugs. They're trying to gra- gather market share. And I think overall this effort is to forestall any opportunity mm. to have a broader uh, cap or, or cuts to list prices or public manufacturing of insulin mm-hmm. uh, at the federal or even state level. They're, they're, they're giving a little bit back to play nice. I mean, keep in mind that it costs an, an incredibly trivial amount to make insulin. Correct. And even with these cuts, uh, the, 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 the profit margins are still going to be rather high. And so to give back some concessions in order to maintain their discretion uh, and not have a law put in place that, that stops them from uh, doing what they want to do uh, probably makes sense. But that, all of that said, it's a, it's a good thing that the Biden administration's pressure, uh, the Federal Trade Commission's pressure on pharmaceutical prices, uh, has resulted in the need for a company like Eli yeah. Lilly to give back some concessions. That is what it feels like to me. It feels like the fact that we're even talking about this at all right now, putting caps on these drug prices, allowing Medicare to uh, you know, eventually negotiate, that it is applying pressure to these companies to at least pretend to do the right thing. And uh, California, by the way, uh, I think not long ago, uh, the governor announced that uh, California Mm -hmm. as a state was going to start producing its own insulin because it really costs next to nothing to do. And these uh, companies are just bilking people. Uh, Finally, and it's completely unfair, David, I've only got like a minute here. You wrote about uh, at the uh, prospect today, but we'll point people over to your fine article on this. Uh, Julie Sue has been tapped by President Biden to become Secretary of Labor, replacing departing Secretary Marty Walsh. Uh, so in the uh, minute I'll give you, who is she? Should progressives feel good about this appointment? And if so, what will Republicans do to prevent it from going through? Judy Sue was the uh, Labor Secretary of the state of California. Uh, she's generally seen as a pretty strong, stalwart, pro-labor progressive. Uh, she got her start. Uh, defending Thai garment workers in Southern California who were being exploited and really uh, enslaved uh, to a degree. Um, uh, th- this is a good uh, a good appointment, and I uh, what is going to almost ensure its passage uh, and confirmation is the fact that as the current deputy secretary, Julie Sue is going to take over the acting secretary duties mm-hmm. uh, as soon as Marty Walsh leaves. And she can keep them until anyone is appointed as as the successor. And so she can keep this indefinitely. And there's no reason for any any Democrats, certainly, to vote against her because or, or to announce that they're going to vote against her, because she could just keep the job as long as she wants without even having to be confirmed. <laughs> so uh, uh, so anyway, I think a good pick and also some good strategy. Yeah. On the part of the Biden 
administration. Smartly played, Biden administration. Very good. I'll point folks to your article on that with the headline, Julie Sue will soon be running the Labor Department. And that appears to be true, whether she is confirmed to the job or not. David Dayen uh, is the executive editor of The American Prospect. You should check them out every day at prospect.org and or follow them on the Twitters at The Prospect and David himself, uh, D. Dayen on Twitter. Are you on are you on the Mastodons yet, David? I am. Okay. Uh, I, I forget my uh, address. There, but yes, <laughs> well, then, never mind. Don't find him there. Uh, okay. Is that D. Day in somewhere? D. Day in somewhere. Or something like that. Gotcha. All right. We'll find it. Uh, you, he's also the author of Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. Full uh, disclosure, I appear there for a page or two in his book, but it's excellent anyway. David, always great speaking with you, my friend. Thank you for covering all of this stuff today. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Always good speaking with uh, David, one yes. of one of the OG bloggers, the old school <laughs> bloggers uh, who started around the same time as me and yep. Heather Digby Parton and, and he is Marcy super, Wheeler. Exactly. And he's yeah. super crushing it over at the American Prospect, yep. really bringing forward progressive reporting and facts. Yes. Uh, excellent work over at the American Prospect. You should check it out. You should subscribe yes. and support his work. All right. We got to get out. My uh, thanks again to David and to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. We hope you enjoyed your time with us here. If you missed any uh, portion of the program, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. That, of course, made possible by those of you kind enough to hit one of those donate buttons or stop uh, by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, I am the Brad Blog. Specifically at Mastodon, I am the Brad Blog at jorna.host. Good luck finding me there. All right, that's it. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1936. That was the day Hoover Dam was formally turned over to the federal government. It was a massive undertaking. Approved by the Coolidge administration in 1928, work began to divert and then dam the Colorado River in 1931, creating Lake Mead. Thousands of unemployed flocked to the area in search of jobs. More than 21,000 were employed over the course of five years, with as many as 5,200 working on any given day. Workers were paid on average of 50 cents an hour with higher pay for skilled work. Governmental hiring terms included preference to veterans and no hiring of Asians. The Colored Citizens Labor and Protective Association of Las Vegas protested de facto hiring discrimination against blacks. Their eventual representation among the employed totaled an estimated 24 to 30 for the duration of the project. A few Native 
Americans were hired as high scalers to remove loose rock with jackhammers and dynamite. Estimated fatalities ranged from 96 to over 150. Many died from falls, heat-related illnesses, falling debris, heavy equipment, and carbon monoxide poisoning from tunnel work. The project was rocked by at least two documented strikes. The industrial workers of the world attempted to organize there. Workers struck over wage cuts and working conditions. They repeatedly demanded flushing toilets and cold, clean running water, especially in temperatures as high as 120 degrees in the summertime. At the time the Hoover Dam was turned over to the federal government, it was the tallest dam and the largest hydroelectric station in the country. It currently generates about 4 billion kilowatt hours of hydroelectric power for Nevada, Arizona, and California. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com.